Ladies and gentlemen, deep sea monsters and vampiric overlords, you've pressed the button that allows you to activate the man Childian candidate here this very fine day. My name is G-Man. I'm sitting behind and beside the ever-powerful and terrifying P-Boss. Good morning, P-Boss. You're looking very handsome today. Well, it is simulated, but I feel like it's working. It and really- uh, as you know, as usual, my friend, you're intimidatingly good looking, um, oh, and I'm just going to work through that, my brother. Well, it's what we do, man. It's what we do. We've got a we've got a large show and a very exciting show here today. A continuation of our Anatomy of series on the man Childian candidate, where we give yes, a very bro. man Childian view of certain aspects and genres and bits and pieces that we just fall in love with over the course of our very colourful lives. Um, but to start off today, before our Anatomy of Horror, that's what we're going to be doing today. What makes a horror film? The anatomy of the scare tactics, etc., etc. Which is, it's going to be fun because there's a lot of, um, there's a bit of splatter, there's a little bit of psychology, and there's a little bit of low lighting, etc., etc. But we're going to open up the old gambit today with um, a little bit of current event tidbit from our very dear P-Boss right now. What do you know, sir? Well, my friend, there is inklings, rumours, there are ravens flying around, uh, clutching ideations in their little claws, that George Lucas has an interest in reprising or rewriting or contributing some movies to the Star Wars universe. Mm. And look, I wanted to gauge your initial, before we discuss much more, I mean, what's your initial temperature to that, my brother? Well, I mean, his name's slapped all over it. We know it's Lucas, don't we? It's 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 his, basically. But we also saw what he did with it. <laughs> and to many of us, the prequels, his uh, little darling babies, fell quite a bit short of where we thought they should be. So I step in with, um, I don't know, quite a lot of apprehension, but there's potential. I mean, can this man, you know, take his own franchise and polish the turds that he actually created? We'll find out, I suppose. But um, whether Disney or not allow this to happen, you know, gee, you can't get in the way of Disney anymore, man. That's it's quite enormous. So what exactly is he planning on doing? Is he going to redo something? I'm kind of confused. The stuff that I read, the articles kind of weren't clear, but they were more sort of commentary, which I think is really interesting. There appears to be a faction at Disney that sort of is looking at it and going, okay, we've kind of destroyed this this franchise that was going to be one of the, you know, linchpins of our organisation. Mm. And I think they're at that position where there's a, there's a strong uh, influential faction who'll go, yeah, we've... We've actually, we've screwed the pooch. Yeah. So there's a probably a business mandate or a business point of view to say, well, product protection. We want to be able to squeeze this lemon, but also the nature of the contract or the agreement that they had with Lucas is 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 fascinating. So my understanding is that Lucas was contractually obligated to contribute or give ideas or quote unquote help out. But they were not contractually obligated to accept any or all of the advice. Right. So he remains a uh, a consultant to the Star Wars universe in, in some sort of fashion. Correct. Effectively, a really highly paid consultant. That's a sort of a tricky landscape. Now, I had also, I was also aware of people talking who were involved with the production of the last three that. Lucas was on the side going, I've got ideas, you know, I'm turning up with his stack of notebooks and that sort of stuff. And they were pretty much like, nah, 
nah, big G, we got this. Yeah, okay. And he's also been more vocal in recent years about sort of going, well, I'm not really super happy with the relationship and I'm not super happy with what happened with the movies. So, my temperature is this. I'm curious as to whether they're going to try to take a revisionist slash replacement approach mm, and mm. kind of go, all right, we'll pull we'll pull one or two movies out of the universe and maybe put them back in. Well, that uh, comes with a lot of caveats. I don't like that. That's, that's setting yourself up for a real tumble, isn't it? You know, and then once you do that, all of a sudden everyone's sort of starry eyed about the old one again, and you're like, wait a second, you can't do that. You know, it yeah. won't it won't go well. But you know. In my consideration, like, uh, there's, I love a good redemption story, man. And, you know, Lucas really did sort of flop a little bit in the prequels. And, you know, to many, yourself and myself included, the, uh, the final three in the, in the uh, saga weren't up to scratch. So, no. you know, Disney kind of also dropped the ball and screwed the pooch a bit. So perhaps it's okay that Lucas had come back for a bit of a redemption story, but, you know. We'll see. Otherwise, what do you do? You just I, if, if I was George Lucas, the first person I'd be having a Zoom meeting with would be a one Jay Favreau. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, going, Johnny. Johnny, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I, I need you, I need you to get the quill out. That's a pretty awesome idea, really. You know, and I think well, gee, Favreau did a killer, killer job with the Mandalorian, man. Absolutely. To be able to continue the Star Wars tradition. And do you know what I really like actually about the Mandalorian? I've I've only seen the first season, but I will get to the second because I just love it. But I like anything that in the Star Wars universe that isn't Jedi centric. It's the same yeah. as going back and going to you know having a Middle Ages film and just focusing on the knights and how boring that yes. is, you know, and then the religion and then the knights. Let's see the grunts. Let's see the guys who are in the shadows, behind the curtains, doing some other stuff. So the universe is ripe for that, man, is it not? Clearly, um, to those who've just tuned in, we're huge. Uh, well, I've heard of Star Wars. It's, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> the weird position for me is that I'm softening on the prequels. I'm softening. I'm super mad at the last three and I'm going to mm. stay mad and it's probably not going to uh, abate. But I'm softening on the prequels because I can see, um, as we discussed with Anatomy of Sci-Fi episode last, last one, I can at least look and say that he was trying to build on and create an overall narrative. He was trying to say that this guy that you met in these three, now I'm going to tell you the story of him. I just, I can't even, I can't say that the final three had even that much of an idea. So, yeah, okay. Well, I, I we have shall a see. funny little feeling that what will happen if he bothers to, right? Everyone's going to absolutely take a dump on those. And then the final three in the saga, we're going to be going, oh, actually, they weren't so bad. Just like you're saying with the prequels, you know, it might just shift the blame a little bit. So, who knows, man. But I'm keen for anything Star Wars, you know, I actually don't care. I actually soak it up. I'm kind of in. So, you've really got to screw it for me not to be involved. Which is really interesting. Yeah. So look, let's let's keep our eyes on that. We'll keep everyone up to date and see what becomes of that. But I think the the consensus between you and I, G, is that we remain cautiously optimistic, and the pooch could not be any further screwed than it already is. Yeah. So, uh, in some ways, why not? Why not? Yeah, I'm with you on that one, man. So yes, very exciting potential news. It's potential news as well, which is um, uh, you know, and it could take a long time, but we'll see. We'll see. We're patient here. This is what we know. We are. We are. 
Well, all right, then let's jump into the flesh, the eviscerated flesh of today's program, the anatomy of horror. So we're going to be trying to break down exactly what makes a horror film, uh, whether it be the scare or the structure or the lighting, blah, blah, blah. P-Boss, how are we going to roll today? What's our little rundown? Well, much like we did with the Anatomy of the Sci-Fi episode, Madudski, we're going to try and look at some elements. We're going to sort of do an alien autopsy, if you will, on this genre. So, we're going to be moving through structure. We're going to have a little bit of a look at the psychology. We're going to have a little bit of a look at the production that goes into or the style of production that goes into horror movies. We're going to discuss some of the tropes, the goods, the bads, and the uglies of the tropes. Mm. And we're going to finish by looking at some examples of the horror genre in some movies. So much like we did with sci-fi episode, sort of try to create a bit of a template, my friend. Uh, a Manchildian template um, yes. of what we consider to be the the wondrous attributes of a uh, of a horror film when done well, yep. and sort of apply those to some examples towards the end. So lovely, mate. Did you wanna Did you wanna kick us off with with structure? I know that um, you and I had sort of talked about the concept of of the three act idea here, mm. my dude. But our three act is a little different, isn't it? Well, it is, dude. And I'd like to. Ask- a quick disclaimer, in order to do this uh, with any justice and properly, there are going to be spoilers absolutely everywhere because we need to analyse and understand the entirety of the film and how how a film ends is often, you know, it can be, a lot of films are like this too, like you build up and you build up to this amazing crescendo and either we can be super surprised or satisfied or abysmally disappointed and we'll, we'll discuss a few of these as we go, but I think, yeah, structure is really important and what I'd really like to established straight away is that there are once again we found with the sci-fi there are many many little sub-genres of what horror actually is and i've broken it down ever so quickly just to give a, a format an idea about what we can be expecting if you wouldn't mind and it's a, it's a fun little list actually and um one of the horror genres which i find really interesting is what they refer to as folk horror now that is something of prophecy that comes with something like you've got uh, your Blair Witch Project in there, which has like this mythology behind it and people exploring it. And uh, Pan's Labyrinth is also rather mythological. And we move on to Gothic, which then is kind of cliched. You've got your cliches as in um, like the be all and end all. And we'll break this one apart a little bit later, but Nosferatu and anything with werewolves and Gothic architecture, etc. Science fiction, of course, sci-fi horror. Sci-fi lends itself to being quite horrible and scary all the time because outside of your spaceship is imminent death <laughs> so by default the, the space is scary man and so you'd have a, an event horizon or a sunshine chucked in there religious man religious horror and so you know i mean classically you've got the exorcist and uh, stigmata and the prophecy itself and all of this stuff um Classically, I think a lot of people think this is horror, which we refer to as splatter, splatter horror. So that's like yes. the 80s where there is actually the terrifying enemy and he's going to chop you up with a machete or a chainsaw, a.k.a. Leatherface or Freddy and Jason et al. And gore kind of sneaks into that one too, which is saw and the human centipede. Um, and the final two, horror... Um, Survival horror. Now, Ah. this is one of the things that sort of often gets us. It's often a linchpin in all horrors in a way, but specifically 
every zombie film basically is a survival horror. Where it's like, wow, I don't have enough ammo, I don't have enough supplies, or alien. And then psychological horror, which is the one yes. that rounds it up. And so Shutter Island, perhaps, um, in an asylum, and Psycho. So I've thrown a few examples at us there, and it might be a bit much, but... In order for us to sort of quantify and understand um, different aspects of horror, I felt like this was sort of important, but I find it absolutely interesting. So that determines the structure and pacing of the film, where it's set, who the protagonists are and who the antagonist will be. And so we did sort of understand a little bit, didn't we, when we had a discussion about most things as we see it are broken down into three acts in a lot of ways, such as theatre, you know, mostly, but... um, Generally in horror, they do stick to this three-act sort of formula if you really want to look at it. And so act one, my brother, the opening act would be, obviously, as you said yesterday, the uh, the setup. And it's putting all the pieces on the board of potentially your horror chest. So you're setting it all yes. up. And so the second act, of course, is it's, it's a building anticipation to what could potentially be a climax. But generally, there's a character point in there where a bunch of turmoil will happen. And then finally, the third act, confrontation, potential resolution. But in horror, that's probably evisceration. So there's this little structure that will take place. What do you think about that little structure there? Have I missed anything along the passage? My friend, uh, I don't think you've missed a thing. That was the discussion that, gosh, you and I have had for years. It's won or lost in the structure. And I liken the first act to, you know, as I said, the chessboard and the chess pieces. So the chessboard is the environment in which the show is occurring. So that's inclusive of environmental aspects, geography. And obviously the chess pieces are the players in the game. And that phase needs to, as we've alluded to in many episodes, it's vital that we we care about the chess pieces. So quite often in that phase, we're establishing the concept of menace. Most importantly, we're establishing our heroes and what they bring to the scenario. Potentially aspects of their history, Mm. which may or may not be utilised against them. Off the top of my head, the best example is we see in The Exorcist, we establish Father Karras. We understand that he's mourning the passing of, I believe it's his mother, uh, malevolently thrown against him by the the demon uh, in the final act of that movie. Dime, why you do this to me? Please, Dimi, I'm afraid. You're not my mother. Mm. And then we move into the second act, which is really, it's it's really where stuff happens. Now, it's not the full exposure of the menace or the danger or the demon or the monster, but it's the equivalent bit to, say, for example, the couple are in the house and they're, they're hearing scratching on the walls, furniture's starting to move. Quite often it's, for example, the wife saying to the husband, something's going on here. I heard this noise coming from Callie's room. It was on the baby monitor. just like a voices and I ran up here and had a look, but there was no one in there. And of course, that is, uh, that's one of my favorite sections, you know, when stuff starts going awry and the phenomenon mm. is occurring. 
And then, of course, my brother, the vital final stage where the villain, the demon, the monster is fully revealed. So, Mm. you know, it's the bit where we've now got Michael Myers in full view wandering along as opposed to just seeing him partially through windows and things like that. Now we've got Reagan in The Exorcist, for example, spewing Mm. green stuff and (laughs) climbing up and down walls and the full voice is exposed. Yeah. Yes, my brother. That's the Manchildian idea of these structures. And we're going to, yeah, we're going to explore when this is done well and when this is not done well. And my friend, I I do want to make this point early in this episode that I've got a lot of movies where I might like the first bit or the second bit, but the third bit fails me. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say that, actually. That's the be-all and end-all, man, isn't it, when it comes to that? And, like, the third act is critical in that. And we'll delve into why a little bit later, um, based upon bits and pieces, but you're absolutely right. And we've seen it work and we've seen it, um, you know, not work so well. And so it's, yeah, we'll have many examples for you at the very end of the prog and all the way through for sure. Um, what's really interesting, if we move sort of slightly to um, maybe even the psychology uh, behind oh, this what interesting. exactly um, triggers us in our mind to experience this. And so what the film needs to do and the director and the writer and the DOP and the actors need to do is they need to give you, the viewer, a sense of fear. Now, how do they do that? Well, it's there's a lot of things and we'll talk about how. And a lot of it's trickery. And a lot of these are old school things. We don't, none of this is really new. You can scare anyone with a simple story. You know, the old cliched stories of, you know, an asylum guy breaking out and two, a couple listening to it on the radio and yes. all of a sudden they're scratching on the roof. You know, that still works for some reason, you know, it, it's tried and true. But I've sort of looked into this a little bit, my bro, and I know that you can back me up on some of this and explore even further if you, if you wouldn't mind. But there are a series of things that seem to have to happen in a film in order for that response to be elicited. And it can be one of these things or it can be many of these things. And I find the most effective are when many are used, um, you know, not over the top, but really effectively and pointedly. And so... To start this little list of mine off about um, how and why we actually get frightened and how that is uh, occurring from the filmmaker, the basic thing, man, the start and be-all and end-all of a horror film generally is having the fear of death. So the main character is probably going to die. And if they're not, if they're not once sort of in peril, it's like, well dude, sorry, I'm not actually taking that. I'm not going to flow with you and you've actually lost me immediately. So you need to be afraid of death. Would you agree on that one? I mean, there needs to be There needs to be a clear and present death danger, my dude. There needs to be an incredible weight to this. Otherwise, yeah, for me, immediate fail. It's not a horror genre. It probably quickly descends down into something more like a thriller. Exactly. And there, are, there is a stark difference between the thriller and the horror, and, I will, and we will discuss that a little bit later. The second thing on the list, it's a bit of a cliche, and it might drift into the trope area, which we will explore at length soon, is the dark. Every film, every horror film, there's no horror film out there that's set in a, in a, a bright room in the middle of the day. Yeah. Like, you know, well, I haven't seen it if that exists. So the cliche, afraid of the dark thing, yeah, that exists. So that's one of the old school lizard brain things. We are afraid of what we can't see. Yes. So there could be anything lurking. But as you said, also alluded to, is the setting. 
and they're scary places. These are scary, typically scary places. And the scariest place that I can think of, to be honest with you, is an abandoned asylum. Something like that where there's torment, like terrible, you know, negative energy being stored in this one place, you know. And um, that... That to me. And then, of course, you've got cliches like uh, a basement or an attic, which are typically dark and, you know, you don't go to the basement or a graveyard, for goodness sake. That's oh, a bit of a cliche, I but don't know. off we go. Another thing that really pops up is mostly the antagonists um, or even sometimes the pr- protagonist. Um, there's a sort of disfigurement. There's something not normal about them. Yes. You know, so you've got Frankenstein's monster, obviously. The dude's cobbled to pieces, you know, together by bits and pieces and animated. He's a horror. Yeah, he's made out of spare parts. And a lot of people forget that. The dude's not named Frankenstein. Frankenstein's no. the doctor. He's called the monster. Frankenstein's monster. But anyway... Um, the Phantom of the Opera, another thing. Like, it's not very scary, but nonetheless, he's got the mask and he's disfigured. And and Beowulf is actually quite literally a monster. So, you know, there you go. You've got all that. Um, obviously, suspense, that's the easy one to understand. That gives you the anticipation. So, the jump scares will work on you easily. Uh, environmental, generally, you know, in the cliched horror film, like a ghost story set in a mansion, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's a storm. Yes. There's always lightning out there and it's always the power goes out or something like that. So you've got an environmental factor that's impacting all of this. And likewise, um, a blizzard, for instance, like in, um, in The Thing, you know, that's also a terrifying thing to go through. And then finally, on this little list of mine, which uh, sort of makes a bit of sense, I think, now that I'm reading it out loud, is the fear of the unusual. And that comes in the form of... Ugh, someone who has really messed clowns up for everyone is Pennywise. The clown is terrifying. Oh, a God. doll. Look at Chucky or any of those dolls that just sit there with glassy yes. eyes. Or a painting like Dorian Gray or um, yes. Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2. Viggy, 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 you have been a bad monkey. This is, you know, always with one of these things. And it's, um, it's really quite imperative to have a like one of these things be most of these things really in in the course of uh, having a concept of a, of a film yes. that's going to elicit fear. What do you think about some of these? Have I missed any of those? I'm really leaning on you for, you know, my own support here today. Well, I? you know, I'm your Sam. It's one of those things, Sam. brother, where you, you hit it on the head. It's we fear what we don't know. And that's a primordial thing. I'm thinking the first version of the horror genre occurred tens of thousands of years ago with early humans sitting around a campfire telling scary stories. And it was all mm. about what was beyond the uh, the campfire itself. So out there, that darkness, this is where all this occurs. Yes. I think you've nailed some really important concepts in terms of like the physiology of the way that our brain works. And I don't know whether or not the people who sort of started horror or designed horror were aware of this sort of stuff. Don't know. But horror, in my opinion, might be quite unique in that it it's going to sound crackers, but it sort of sort of hits you in a neurosciencey sort of way. You know, for example, we know that we have multi-tiered levels of our brains that are, you know, built up over years, man, and they don't talk too well together. You know, mm. we've got that lower part of our brain that's it's a bit like it's a bit akin to trying to use a Commodore sixty four down the bottom to run Google Chrome up the top. You know, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that top part of our brain, that neocortex, is is understanding and processing information and seeing stuff on the screen, right, it sort of gets that there's no 
clear and immediate danger. Direct threat to you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that brain gets it. That part of your brain gets it, but there is that you dumbass guy lower down that was really only ever built to run a reptile, so we can't be mad at it. He's sitting down the bottom there going, I was only ever contracted to drive a lizard, so don't get pissed off at me. <laughs> but, of course, he's got the levers to the to the hormones and stuff. So the beautiful thing is you're having these visceral reactions, G-Fresh. Your heart rate's up or you might be sweaty mm. or you might be getting goosebumps, all that sort of stuff. Well, that's, a, that's an indication that there's – a sphere, a hemisphere of your brain that is right there thinking that this danger is is happening right now and, and to an extent to us. So all the interplay between those things, you've got a party, man. You've got a party. Now, some people don't like that interplay. Some people don't like that feeling, and, and I would posit that that's directly why. But others like us, dude, there's an element with not only do we like that feeling, we crave that feeling, and we may be addicted to that feeling. Yeah. In yeah. my case, I am just, I'm such a snob, and this is, I probably should have said it, warned this at the top of the intro of this episode, I'm so snobby about horror movies, I kind of think they're sort of failing in the last 10 to 15 mm. years, so I desperately want stuff to scare me and put me back into that landscape, my brother. So look, the psychology of this sort of thing is fascinating to me. Mm. Goodness me, you skillfully wove through that, man. That's absolutely brilliant and absolutely spot on, like spot on. And that's the funny thing that you mentioned just then to me is that, yeah, this this fear that, that we're getting, we know there's no direct threat to us, but somehow we're accessing that. And it is sort of addictive, but it does take a very particular personality. I know a lot of people that don't enjoy the horror film and I ebb and flow. I actually need something really good and really, really spot on. Yes. Um, but- it is a question I think a lot of people who don't enjoy horror question and ask is that why do you want to subject yourself to that feeling, you know? And, you know, the real answer is, what's that to you? I feel like there's you're accessing, you're able to access a very low form of adrenaline, oh, which yeah. somehow feels really quite delicious if you're in control of it. I mean, of course, adrenaline is our fight and flight and flee and shag mentality isn't it but it's yeah it's really quite amazing accessing that when you don't directly need it yeah yeah. so i think that's the addiction behind that if if i pick that up correctly absolutely my dude and so the psychology of this sort of stuff is going to be something that we sort of continuously explore as we go forward but yeah i would posit that as a theory at least personally i need that interplay one of the really big things I think is incredibly important, and I don't think it necessarily gets overlooked by the horror lovers, but potentially uh, a lot of others potentially miss out on this, is that any film you're watching, whether it be you know horror, sci-fi, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all of our favourites, films are split into two very distinct senses. So you've got one, you've got visuals, and you've got audio. Now Ooh. the audio, my brother. The audio is almost enough in some cases to get you through the entire film. Like theme songs, for instance, they can elicit instant fear. Like if you're swimming in the lake or the sea or the water and someone goes to you. All you need is those two notes and you realize or you feel like... There is a shark underneath me and it's going to get me. We've already got that association with yes. Jaws. 
in two notes with um, Norman Bates as well. The sound for, you know, the string stabs as the knife is going in. That we know automatically to be a murderous sound. Absolutely. So we've automatically, and all of the sounds, generally they're always a little bit sharp or flat. They're not often in the majors. So that sort of gives you a little sort of, it's an uneasy feeling. And that is also really psychologically really effective way of eliciting that sort of fear. It gives you that unnerving and eerie feeling, doesn't it? And like we said yesterday with um, The Exorcist Man, when you're hearing like the soundscape of this brooding sort of theme, and often it's just one note a lot of the time, but then the Aramaic coming out of Reagan, for goodness sake, before she spits the green soup at you, dude... The soundscapes are terrifying. Absolutely. And that really is an incredibly interesting mechanism for getting our fear up. It's, it's absolutely baffling. I can't think of too many other theme songs off the top of my head right now that give that response. But, gee, those two examples just now, that's sort of like the be-all and end-all. And they're the cliched, tick that box, yet they're in terror already. And the film hasn't even started yet. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, brother, you raise a really good point. So, audio and the way horror uses audio is done, in my opinion, so much better than other genres. I get a little bit irritated when a sound effects editor or a movie composer almost is telling me what to feel. So, Mm. that's what sometimes I find really fundamentally annoying about trying to watch dramas or rom-coms. It's almost like the music is telling you what to feel or the sound effects. It's like, no, no, don't don't do that. Don't do that. Whereas horror just wants you to go, hey, something's awry. I'm not telling you what it is, but yeah. something's not right. Yeah. Because exactly. the other element of the psychology that we were sort of we, we, we sort of referred to before is that Left unchecked, your mind is going to create a hundred different you know, horrific scenarios all by itself. And I feel like the the good producer of the horror genre wants you to go through all the probabilities in your head and crap your pants at a micro level mm. <laughs> at everyone, mm. you know? Exactly. So it's that idea of sort of saying, well... I'm not going to tell you what to feel, but I am going to indicate to you that something's awry. And that's what horror does so well. And also, my bro bro, a little sort of side titbit, with The Exorcist, and I still don't know how I feel about this, I found out, um, God, after watching it so many, many times, the the director put in recordings of quote-unquote real exorcisms. That's right. Yeah, that makes it even worse knowing that, you know. It really... (laughs) In the background, when Reagan is doing all that stuff, that is allegedly... The potentially the recording of an actual demonic possession. And I remember when Ugh. I found out about that going, I don't know if I want that coming through the speakers <laughs> yeah. in my house. That's right. And the little he's hearing it. My God. Billy Friedkin, you're a cheeky bugger. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, look, when we use sound and when we use music, my dude, and when we do it well, it's part of that multi-hit combo that you referred Mm. to at the start of the show. Yeah. And sometimes we're not even aware of it. We're not even consciously aware of it. And that's when it's done best. That's when it's done best. When you haven't even realized you've been uh, 
you don't even know you've been manipulated by this in such a fashion because generally it's subconscious. You're listening. You're watching. That's that's what you're watching a movie is what you're doing. You're not listening to the movie. So yes. that's always plays second fiddle. So when someone can manipulate you like that, and two things that I want to say on that ever so briefly is um, when folk and sound designers use silence instead of sound. Oh my god, it's almost more effective. Like how much music is in the Blair Witch Project? Absolutely none. And there's, ne- you know, you're never comfortable for some reason. There's no that, there's not reassuring music. There's not the suspenseful music, you know, oh, something's coming because I can anticipate it. You don't know when something's going to happen in that because there's no indicators at all. The flip side of this, which is really interesting, there's this really fantastic little website and I'm going to share it um, up in the up on the FB page and the Instagrams is you can go and you get two little screens of the YouTube. It's like a mixer if you're going to do YouTube DJing, but what it does is very specific and you can take any film that you can think of and it works incredibly well with horror and it what it does is it speeds up the uh, the footage for you so it looks like a, a little bit of an older film like like a silent film and it puts the Benny Hill soundtrack behind it <laughs> you can take any film you like the scarier the better put that to the exorcist speed the footage up a little bit all of a sudden it's a comedy that's how effective the manipulation of music and sound is. You know, you can turn the most harrowing film out there into something a little funnier <laughs> just by the sound. Yes, and not coincidentally, it's already about 17% more randy. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> oh, Benny. Why didn't he get a knighthood? Goodness me. Yeah, I don't know. There's still time. There's still time. I agree with you. I've done experiments with that myself even just turning the sound down so just having the volume down and it's a completely different experience but uh i always think about we're sort of alluding to a landscape where the filmmaker puts us in a sense where we are not in control and i know when i've spoken to other people who don't like horror that's what I've kind of felt from them. They don't like this thought of being all at sea. They don't like the idea of having no semblance of control, mm. which is strange to me. I think that's why people allegedly, apparently there are humans out there, G-Man, that like Home and Away and Neighbours and all these shows. I just can't think of anything more boring, but at least there's that predictable beige, you know, off-white, ebony, bone, white, ivory sort of a lifestyle <laughs> going on there, my dude. Vanilla. Vanilla. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's just like, wow, the filmmakers really want to make – uh, they, they really want to give us a sense, either consciously or not, that you, we're not in control here, um, which obviously is going to parallel the experience of the characters, the victims in the movie, my brother. But yes. I don't know, dude. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being strapped into the roller coaster and not being in control. I would posit that not everyone is. No, and I think that's where there's two differences between people in that regard too because I'm a roller coaster sort of dude. And even if it's a who done it, a bit more of a thriller or something like that. Yes. You know, I've sat with people who are going, "Oh, I know it's him. It's definitely him because he, you know, they're trying to figure it out." And I don't know if that's because they're uncomfortable that it makes them a bit more grounded and not as scared because they're trying to, "Okay, well, I understand why this is happening." Dude, I bite what they're doing, hook, line, and sinker, and I'm getting dragged across the Huron Lake by my mouth Yes, as I'm enjoying this, well, inverted commas, enjoying this experience, you know? So I do bite it. I go for the roller coaster. I don't try and quantify it or understand it too much because for me that just takes it away. And um, I get what the 
you know, the producers and the writers and the directors are trying to do. And so I, I go on that journey with them. And then at the end, I go, boy, that was scary. Boy, that. And then I analyze it at the end. But I believe me, when I'm riding that, I'm not thinking about how the, where the ride's going next. I'm just taking it. People, and we've all watched a horror movie or a whodunit with them that want to say, oh, I know who it is. I think that's still their version of trying to get some semblance of control. That's right. 100%. Like, if they can understand it, because that's what they're seeking, is to understand something that they shouldn't be able to understand at this point. And I feel like a good horror movie subverts expectations, not like bloody, you know, your mate Ryan with the, you know, second last Star Wars movie. Don't! <laughs> yeah. Oh. That's, oh. I'm dragging through the mud every episode for the next three years. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat mud, dude. <laughs> I love it when a movie is able to go, no, 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 this is not what's going on. The old, the old twist. Yeah, man, the psychology, the structure. These are all going to be Venn diagrams. I think with sci-fi, we kind of had a checklist. To me, I reckon these are going to be Venn diagrams that interact. Yeah, I think it's a 3D Venn diagram too. It's going to be oh super confusing. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Well, look, man, I think that's a, it's a great little segue into sort of understanding a little bit a bit more about um, the cliches. And instead of using cliches, we use the word tropes. The common elements in a horror film and – once again, it's 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 confusing because if some of these things aren't there, you're, as the viewer, slightly disappointed. But if they're there and they're a little bit too obvious and a bit cliched, it's lost all of its power, you know. And there's a few things, and I know, you know, I get really frustrated with uh, certain tropes that happen. And I'm going to tell you one straight off the bat. It's the top of my list you look that mad. gets us all every time. It's it's when someone does in a film, someone does something so completely illogical that it just automatically pisses you off because you know we've all seen a thousand films where people do this and it's splitting up, dude. Yeah. If you're in a group and you're terrified and you're like, well, someone's gonna die, so we better all stick together. And someone's, like, I better just go and check the attic. And like, <laughs> if you need help, it's like, no, no, I'm fine. I got this. I got this attic thing. Dude doesn't come back. Of course he doesn't come back. And so that's one of the tropes that gets me, man, every time because it's just after this amount of time, you know, I mean, Nosferatu, yeah, we we call that one of the first, if not the absolute first film that has the brackets around it, horror. And since then, so my dude, literally 100 years of horror films, we've seen people split up for 100 years. Have we not learned? Go in a team, hold hands. And what pisses me off too, uh, genuinely as well, when something is in the house or you think there is a scratching or something's moved or there's something banging in the attic. Dude, you know what I would do? 100%. I would run and make a bunch of noise, shining lights and smashing stuff. I'm like, make this big scene yeah. instead of this, I'm going to go very quietly so that he can scare me. Why? You know? Turn it around. Scare the dude who's lurking in the I attic see. with the big knife. You're going to get on the front foot there. You're going to be proactive. I'd be terrified the whole time, let me tell you, and then I'd cry and run away. But 
hopefully I'd still be alive. Yeah, I get it. You know, I, no, no, like, I hear. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? All right. So anyway, that was a little bit of a rant on the first couple of tropes that really sort of bother me. I want to join you momentarily on that rant. Yes. Because I do feel like it's like, is this the only person who's not ever seen another horror movie? <laughs> That's like, right, man. You know, the dude yeah. who goes, yeah, no, I'll go out. There's a outdoor little generator. I'll go out and turn that on. It's like, are you the only human that's never seen a horror movie, brother? Like, yeah, yeah. what is this? That's it, man. Especially in 2020, dude, when all the characters have mobile phones and they refer to things, and surely you've seen people do this before in a film. Now, I will posit this early in the trope section, and just to be devil's advocate, do you think, G. Frizzle, that a skillful a skillful filmmaker is doing this deliberately because it puts you right in that space of no control. All you want to do is run over and grab that dude by his jacket and go, oh, you're crazy. You need to stay here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. I, I'm just going to posit that really early. I wonder if good filmmakers do this because it's exactly what you would not do yourself. Hundy P. Hundy P. And that, my dude, is exactly... Uh, a point on this trope list is one thing that gets us and it's perfectly done in many ways is the sense of isolation like that is terrifying when you're by yourself that's what's scary and that's why it's done you know you can't do that's exactly why it is as frustrating as it is if you didn't have that person wandering off by themselves i mean it's not scary if you're in a room with 12 people even if a ghost comes in there everyone's going ah to go. Sure, you're scared for an instant, but we can handle this. It's all of us. I can see Barry through the ghost. He's just across the room there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's right. Barry, you got food on your face. I can see it through the ghost. You know? <laughs> and so, honestly, man, if that, that's another, that's a perfect example of something that if it didn't happen, you'd go, well, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm not even on your bandwagon. I can't come on that ride with you because I'm not scared because yeah. I'm not isolated. Yes. You know, there's safety in numbers, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that's a nice, exactly, that's a very good point. And as I prefaced at the start of this trope list, man, yes, if we're missing any of these, you're sort of, ah, you're sort of disappointed. Like, why didn't they do it, you know? It's really quite a baffling thing, isn't it? I think this trope list is possibly going to be the most vital ingredients, the key performance indicators, my friend. Yes. Continue. Please continue. I like what you – I will, I will. I like that. Um, Sort of in the same vein as splitting up, you know, when you're in a group and someone's going to go and check the generator by the lake, which you know you shouldn't do, um, is that person generally on the way, or if you're fleeing from someone, they take a shortcut. It's like, cool, let's go down that lit – um, lit road, right, which is sort of a little bit longer to get to the lake and the generator, or we can go down that alley or through the basement, which will get us there much faster. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. We know what happens, man. You know, there's that cliche again. It's always taking that shortcut. Could we instead go down this alley that's strangely, strangely listed as Ambush Alley? That's right, yeah. And there's like dry ice all over it. It looks scary, but it's quicker. It's much quicker. There's all these menacing branches and shadows yeah. hanging over Ambush Alley, but damn <laughs> it, right. I don't want to do the yeah. cardio. It seems like the move. Look, the production team said the film's got a running time of 90 minutes. If I go the long way, it goes for three hours. So I've got to go through the alley. Not a runner. 
This is sort of a more modern trope, I suppose. Temporary. Um, well, yeah, and uh, there's two of these. It's a double banger here, my bro. And so for the modernity out there in the filmmaking, um, often what happens now is all the characters have got, of course, because it's 2020, they've got mobile phones. Yes. We've all got mobile phones. So we've got a camera, we've got a light, we've got an ability to communicate to the outside world and also be communicated with. So this this is really quite critical. And so what will happen is, oh, I don't have any service. Oh, my light's not working. and My battery's just run out. Yeah. This, you know, that's got to happen. It just has to. Got and that's happen. a double header because with the um, a lot of films, there's you find old footage. There will be a, a box of home movies that you find in a house that you've just moved into, which you bloody know aren't your films, but I'm going to watch them and I'm going to curse my whole family <laughs> in doing so and keep it secret, you know. I mean, that's a cliche too. Super 8's not good for you. Don't, don't whip <laughs> really out the Super 8, man. Dude, dude, and that is the whole premise of um, The Blair Witch. I mean, that's not live. This is stuff they found, yeah. you know, and going through and like. <gasps> They were eviscerated. It's like, yeah, well, don't watch the film. Just burn it straight away. Throw it away. Go, you know, hell, I'm take, hell, take it to the op shop. I don't care. Let someone find it later. Yes. Don't really mind. And that's The Ring as well and, and Sinister and, you know, all of these other films. Um, conjuring Evil, my bro. Conjuring oh. Evil. There are many people who have attempted, like, you know what? I'm going to draw a pentagram on the ground and try and summon a demon. Yeah. And The Conjuring of Evil is across many boards it could be a massive prophecy or this thing where someone's literally trying to get the devil to come back to earth or it's as simple as a Ouija board sitting around with your friends let's summon the ghost of the house oh it turns out it's my mum and you know she wants to get me Dude, I mean, that's cliched as hell. It's not your mum. It's not your mum. I think two, um, probably three of the most obvious, um, if you didn't have them, uh, you'd be very disappointed. Um, After all of the anticipation we're talking about in, um, you know, both the idea of structure and in the formula of the acts, act two being the highest anticipation where stuff is actually happening. Yes. That leads perfectly into the old classic jump scare. You oh. can't have a horror film without the jump scare when there's nothing there and all of a sudden there is something there or a little face appears behind something. Ah, gets you. And it works, man. Yes. It just works. I mean, if you walk up to someone who's in the office or at school or wherever and you quietly do it and no one else is around and you go, boo, dude. Jump scared the hell out of them. It's easy to do and it's a cheap tactic, right? Absolutely. And I suppose that's why we don't really I don't care much for it because it's just been done. But if I didn't have a jump scare, I'd be, eh, I'm actually not kind of scared. There's not that, you know, that big feeling of uh anxiety that you get from someone actually scaring the shite out of you. Um and that blends in with the mirror scare, you know, the cliched mirror. Someone's in the bathroom, they're having a scary time. They open the mirror, get a tablet, and they close it. Someone's behind them, you get the jump scare. Totally. Once again. Um, and sort of like two of the final tropes that I'd like to talk about here would be um, killer in the back seat. You hop in the car, you've made a big dash, and you're scared as hell, and you made it to the car. Oh, thank God. Uh, it's in the car, right behind you. That one kills me. That's a goodie, isn't it? Yeah, do you check the seat of your car when you get in at night time? course i do uh it's just one of those things but it's like really man you're in a hyper aroused state you've just been running from some cat that's just killed 90 of your mates and you've narrowly escaped and on the way the dude's jumped out of every spot surprise surprise he was in ambush alley oh that alley you're not gonna get in the car and just check you're not gonna rotate your neck and just turn 
Come yeah, on. You only need man. 45 degrees and your peripherals kick in and you can see. Turn it up, son. You know? Exactly, man. Oh, actually, finally, I think this is this is an interesting one for me. Is that anyone, anyone in any film, horror or otherwise, well, no, particularly horror because that's what we're talking about today, but if you become amorous with Ooh. one of your comrades, oh, yeah. for instance, and yeah. enjoy a little bit of rough and tumble, those people will die. They'll die. Hands down, the amorous couple will die. It's the classic thing, again, as we you know preface the show with. In a way, when the couple is sitting on make-out point and they're listening to the radio. Totes. And a Shylam breakout has happened, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you know, a boyfriend goes to check to see what that sound is. And it turns out it's his head banging on the wall. You know, it's horrible, man. So that's sort of like a quick rundown. Well, I was going to say, that little moment that you, you described there, that's a perfect example of the microcosm of the three-act structure. So, act one is the two kids, you know, sitting in the car, getting amorous. Uh, depending on the rating of the movie, we could have more or less information than that, and they hear the story on the radio. That's right. Act two is when they're in the car and stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. The head's being banged the on the roof, and, and you know, yeah. scared, ah, but no major reveal of the dude yet. Act three, of course, is when Boyfy gets out and carnage ensues. So that's a, yes. that's a wonderful example. Uh, I wanted to add one more trope, if I could, my friend, and this just came Please. to me just before... I don't know how I feel about this trope. I'm not sure if it's vital or I'm not sure if it's been too too much used and I'm sick of it, but the fake wake up from a nightmare, the oh, old yeah. double wake up dude. Mm-hmm. You know the yeah. one? Yeah, I know the one, man. I know the one. And and that can commonly, disappointingly, and it was huge in the 80s, uh, you know, and the 90s, of course. Yeah, yeah. American Werewolf in London had a, had a oh. very good one. Well, the, yeah. Ah, very good point. Yeah. But what grinds me too is when you actually get to the end of the whole film and then the dude wakes up. Yeah, no. It's like, oh, so that was all a dream and then there's like no. a little scratch and there's something that he's got from his dream in his hand or something, you know? Yeah. It's classic and, you know, it worked. But now we've seen it. Once again, as I said, horror films have been in existence for <clears throat> 100 years. We've seen it, man, you know? A really good example of it would be Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Ooh. The fake wake-up trope was used minimally considering mm. the genre and the, and the style of the movie, but done brilliantly. But I'm sorry, bro, by, by the ensuing sequels, it just became a thing of just predictably going, oh, it's not awake, yeah. you know. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, now, I mean, that's Johnny Depp's first film. Yeah, man. My dude. And that, yeah, it's quite amazing, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that is exactly right. I mean, for those that... Um, no, obviously, the premise of the Nightmare on Elm Street thing is Freddy Krueger is uh, the, the guy that slays you in your dreams. Yes. You know, and that's, um, so yeah, the whole waking up thing and going to sleep thing in that in particular, well, it was going to be overused, wasn't it? And then they just thought, whoa, number one was successful. Let's make a bunch of them. Yes. Like a bunch. And I'm talking a bunch. And by a the, bunch. You know, it's actually like a comedy at the end. He's like, oh, can they slash that guy, please? Oh, he's annoying. You know? By then, that's when, if it drifts into that comedic realm, unless it's over the top and gory and you go, oh, how did they make those eyes pop out? Up until then, you're like, ah, no, nah, sorry, man. That's too tropey for me. Yeah. It's yeah. actually, I've lost it. Yeah. 
perfect example, man, of of how you balance the trope. Because Nightmare on Elm Street one, great movie. Stand, in my opinion, stands up, gets a ton of points again for just going. This is wow. This is an original idea, and what a sinister and malevolent idea. Because eventually, everyone's going to Sleepy Town. You know, this is <laughs> yeah. this is this yeah. is an extension on that whole vampire daylight thing. It's it's an extension on that because you're going. You know, you're going to Sleepy Town eventually, dude. And yeah. Frederick can just have his feet up and wait for you. Yeah. Well, look, man, I, I just want to ask you a question, too, completely off the cuff. Go. Um, do you think that a zombie film is a horror film? Because I'm drifting to the realm of no, it's A, a comedy, B, an action I mean, I can look at the list here and go, all right, yeah, cool. It's a survival horror film. Yep. We've discussed the lack of, well, the radio's out of batteries or I have no ammo or running out of food, and so we've got to go out. Yeah. That's scary, sure. But is it horror? I would prefer that it is its own genre. I think there's been so much in that universe. I think there's been so much under that concept that it is enough to be its own genre. Not sure how you feel about that, but I love the zombie genre. I hold it dear to my heart. But yeah, you're right. It's obviously got elements of gore. It's got elements of several other aspects of horror. Not in the least the idea that control is being taken away. These giant, uh, you know, herds of of shambling mounds are not. Uh, they're not. They're not ever going to give up or stop. They're like crappy rotting terminators. They don't feel pity. They don't feel p- fear, and they're not ever going to stop. So I think that in itself is really, really interesting. Well, they started as horror, really, didn't they? Like, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. George Romero, did. like they were terrifying, 100%. and we started drifting into the realm of viewing them as. Everyone's got a you know every man child in candidate or a players at home right now has a zombie plan. They do. They know the weapon they're going to use. They know oh, the building they're going to hunker down in. <laughs> they know who they're going to keep with them, and they know the role they're going to play exactly in the zombie apocalypse. But. That was for the shambling zombies, you know, the the slow moving, going to suck your brains. And they're not really very terrifying, I suppose. As we mentioned last episode, the, the, these sprinters and these rages, oh, it's a the rage zombies, new fish. But um, nah, dude, to answer your question, and, and I never seem to do this in a short way. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed. You know, on Peebos Island, it's in its own category. It's in its own... I guess for general populace, I could see how it could exist as a sub-genre of horror. Mm. Yeah. No, exactly right, man. And that's initially, yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, the whole notion of a shambling zombie, I mean, this dude is dead. He's dead. He's dead and he's falling apart and he's coming for you. The whole concept of that. Once again, if we tick some boxes, we've got the disfigurement, the dismemberment, the scary places. They're probably in a graveyard coming, rising from, you know. Oh, We've yeah. forgotten about the classic zombie sort of thing where the hand bursts up out of the grave. Totally. You know, now they're just getting bitten and biting each other and turning in the damn street and running for you. Yeah. Initially, they were very scary, you know. Very, very scary dudes. A classic zombie movie for me would be Return of the Living Dead. Mm. I probably watched that when I was too young. I'll fully admit that. (laughs) Yeah, that for me, it still is my foundational data in terms of my understanding Mm. of, of that zombie universe. So, yeah, and like you said, the whole hands coming up 
through the grave. The wonderful scene with the, the zombie that's uh, on the examination table and his spinal cords waving about and he's yes. actually giving some exposition. Yeah. We eat brains because it stops the pain of rotting. It makes the pain go away. Dude, that movie. And I've digressed. Yeah, it's its own thing for me, but I think Manchildians would probably agree, but I think general populace would would probably think that it's that it's horror. Yeah, I reckon you're on the money. All right, my man. Well, that's um that's a pretty comprehensive list that we've sort of come up with. We delved in a little bit of um zombie action there too, which I just love. I know you and do. And I think we have sort of like, yeah, understanding that it that probably is a genre unto itself and probably should have written that on the genre list because it's a whole other thing. But um, one little genre of horror, and this isn't necessarily a genre, this is a medium is what I meant to say. Ooh. Uh, and I'm going to throw this out really quickly and posit a few ideas and lay them upon you. Uh, video games, my bro. Um, and I don't want to lose any of our players at home by mentioning this. <laughs> <laughs> This is a time when the non-video gamer goes and gets a sandwich. Have 10 minutes, people. (laughs) See you in a moment. (laughs) Video games, my dude, sort of also have elevated and escalated the genre of horror in very, very profound ways. And in fact, have inspired so many major motion pictures. The... I'm going to give three examples here, two of which have been made into movies. One is Resident Evil. Um, has become an enormous movie franchise. I don't even know off the top of my head how many of them there are, but they star the ever-powerful Mila Jovovich. And I think, I-, uh, I think we're up to about 26, 27. Oh, 26. Yeah. I do get confused. Yeah. Um, and that's, of course, a zombie show. Um, and a zombie game where, you know, they started out as shamblers and you've got limited ammunition. So you've got yourself a survival horror game. That game, dude, I just get to jump in yeah, briefly and I know please. we shouldn't talk too much about video games, but here it goes. That game, my friend, was primarily about inventory management. Yeah. It was my first introduction with a game where it was like going, oh, this is... Not painful, but it's like, my God, I can't carry certain amounts of this because i got to make sure I yeah. got that. It's like, oh, boy, managing my inventory is as much of a strategy in this as which corridor I choose to turn down. That's right. Dude, that's exactly right. And I think that's a lot of people's introduction to, you know, the survival inventory management when I don't have enough ammunition. I don't have this and I don't have that. Yeah. Um, another one of the, f- the, the same in the same ilk, and in fact, I find far more – uh, harrowing is Silent Hill, and it's a terrifying thing. What Silent Hill does, and I'd like to throw that um, at us as well, because it controls a bit the same as Resident Evil. It's a slow-moving protagonist. He sort of handles like a tank, and if you're going to turn, you need to stop and turn and then walk forward. So you're actually limited clunky. and inhibited by movement. Well, clunky, yes, but... Um, it sort of plays kind of well into the horror genre oh, in the game because you're not stressing. agile. You can't move. You can't. You know, when you're running away, you're literally going. <laughs> it is horrible. And once again, inventory management. But what that game does, and consequently the movie as well, is it turns places that should be um, sanctuary yes. into something terrifying. You know. So those that don't know, Silent Hill has a split dimension. One's the real world, it's terrifying, it's covered in mist. And the second one is this horrible, twisted, rusty, blood-splattered alternate dimension of exactly where you are in time. It's akin to the upside down. 
Exactly right, 100%. If the upside down from Stranger Things isn't influenced by the kind of upside down in Silent Hill, I am very surprised. Yes. And you can shave my bum and call me your monkey uncle. And don't do that, please. But you know, well, That's, that's you how know, severely I take this. We have spoken about, I, I know you <laughs> love have. that stuff and that is cool. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. shaved you a couple of times, but you. you know, I, each time I do it, I say I'm not doing this again. So, but then you do. There's a limit. There is a limit. Oh, yeah. New Year's is coming, man. You know, yeah. everyone's got a resolution. We'll talk about but this these off places air. of sanctuary. Yes, please. These places of sanctuary are generally uh, like a school. It's a place of knowledge and safety. No, it's disrupted and it's horrible now. A church, a hospital, home, your bedroom. Um. And as we just alluded to with uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street, while you're asleep in your dreams, mm. come on, man, that's the only place you can actually go. That you have to go eventually. You have to. And so that's, that's what thing. makes it absolutely terrifying. So a few more, um, just one more that I actually really like to mention is uh, the Japanese name for this is Fatal Frame. The English and PAL version is called Project Zero. Ooh. And I don't know if you heard of this one, man. And you probably have. But for those that haven't, um, you are a little girl looking for your sister who is also a little girl. Once again, children, <laughs> terrifying yes. in horror films. They are just, <laughs> get away, little girl. Um, and your only weapon, unlike uh, Silent Hill and Resident Evil in this, is a camera. Oh, God, give me a shotgun. No, you've got a camera. And so what happens is you're cruising through this horrible, horrible, tormented and twisted village, and these ghosts come at you, and how you kill them or dis, you know send them off to the spirit realm is you need to take a photo of them the gimmick really is that the powerful camera is only powerful when the ghosts are next to you you've got to watch these horrible things coming at you and wait and wait and wait oh my god she's right at me and then you click and then she's you know, banished to the nether realm or wherever she goes, but you've got to watch these things come at you, man. It is so bad. And I've only played it for about an hour or so, but Lord, I watched my bro play through that whole thing. And even as an avid viewer and not the actual guy pushing the commands, it's still terrifying. And I'm also picking up on my bro's fear, obviously. And yes. um, he just loves that stuff and turns all the lights off and, no, not for me. I've got a little little light in my pocket, and I just shine that, and I look down. And I'm like, okay, okay, things are going to be all right. I'm but video games right. as a medium, what a hell of a way to frighten the pants off you. And I would uh, throw in the original Alone in the Dark from back I in the Dizay on that one it's as on well. It's on the list man. there. Yeah, I like it. And the Evil Within's a relatively new one as well, and that's sort of terrifying in so many fashions. Oh, my God. But to those gamers out there, I'm sure you're well and truly on top of all of these and have your favourites as well. And I'd love to hear about those, if you wouldn't mind, on the FB page. So hit us up about your favourite horror game and why that scared the pants off you. Absolutely. Well, well, look, we're getting to the sort of like the pointy end of the afternoon, my dude, and um, we'd be remiss in not talking on a few things. And as we said, I want to bring out some examples of uh, the list that we've created in our heads and for our listeners of uh, films where the horror absolutely nailed it or and examples of times when the horror genre didn't. Exactly yes. nail it and why those are. But um, to fire away first off, just out because this is just fantastic. And I've alluded to this many times throughout the program. The very first in many people's minds, if not 
actually 100% true horror film is Nosferatu, made in 1922 by F.W. Murnau. Now, this is, of course, a time when uh, we couldn't do the sound and the visuals at the same time. And so it was completely silent, obviously black and white, and something happens then, you know, and the old school method of filming is someone is literally cranking that film across the exposure, and you've got this sort of stiff sort of unnatural very strange movement and it's always saturated with a bit too much light like the contrast is always a bit too high so when you've got this character who is the original dracula basically who was inspired by bram stoker and all of this this is count orlock who's played by Frederick Gustav Maximilian Schreck, better known as just Max Schreck. Oh, this man is terrifying in his oh, role. Yeah. And he scared the bejesus out of absolutely everyone on set too. And what then happened was they made a film years, years later called Shadow of the Vampire with Willem Dafoe and Malkovich about the making of this Brilliant. film. And it explores a whole lot of uh, what I'm about to say is that the rumour has it that he, in fact, was this vampire that uh, Murnau had found and had cast to give extra weight to the actual vampiric nature of Count Orlok. And the best bit is about it. There is not much information about Max Shrek, my dude, and it, there's no reason to believe why he actually wasn't, you know. And I just love that mythology behind that dude. It's really great. Well, mate, I just applaud how you've inserted, you've jammied, you've uh, tapped in through a square peg with your round hole a little conspiracy theory uh, into this. It's a thread that is worth pulling because to this day, for me, that is still one of the most sinister and scary versions of a cinematic vampire that I've ever seen. That dude, that whatever it is, man, costume, whatever, or real dude, whatever it is, still is sinister, malevolent, and Mm -hmm. freaky. Yeah. The other thing about this era is because you readily alluded to the the way that they filmed and the lighting and the overexposure, which I think actually contributes to the overall funky fear, is that a lot of these actors, the Bella Lugosi's and and these sorts of guys, they were stage actors. So they came from a stage background because, as you mentioned, this is the beginning of this medium. So their performances were with the entirety of their bodies. So you're looking at these guys And obviously, they're also aware that sound may or may not be involved and that language isn't involved and their expression of sound isn't involved in their performance. So, you get these incredible physicalities to their performances, my brother, which really you don't get these days. No. Um, Because of some of the mediums that we've previously mentioned, because of production and camera angles and music and sound effects and all this sort of stuff. But there's something about going back, my cousin, and watching these old movies, particularly Nosferatu, that movie, man, is freaky AF. Yes. And it's not that long, dude, either. And that's no. the surprising thing. And look, on a really lovely little side note, um, the, the word, well, the name Shrek, S-C-H-R-E-C-K, in German, means terror. It does. So, I mean, oh, God. God, it's got all the hallmarks of absolute genuine, like, terror. The whole damn point of it, man. 
just from concept and you know actuality from behind the scenes and knowledge of Max Shrek, Max Terra in himself. Oh my god! But it's so worthy for those that haven't seen it for the players at home. Watch Nosferatu, absolutely, but also follow it up by watching Shadow of the Vampire about the making of it. Um, and it's a little bit fanciful. It's not 100% accurate, but, gee, you get the essence of what the production crew were witnessing whilst working with this very, very strange and elusive man. So I'd follow that up. Yeah, it's definitely taking a position. It's it's putting on its wonder hat and going, I wonder, but... It is it is uh, congruent with a lot of the things that you the limited information that we have about the production of the original and the fact that he when you say that he freaked out his fellow actors you you had a couple of actors literally saying that he his very presence just curdled their blood it yeah. was like wow so. Oh, dude, I, I choose to ride that conspiracy train all the way to conspiracy station, brother. Man, I'm biting at a hook, line, and sinker. I don't care how true it is. I think it's just fantastic. Like, honestly. So, look, in terms of if we can stay just briefly, because I'm curious, again, anyone listening knows that this is a water cooler style production and conversation, which we just love having you all involved with. I mean, what for you is the best version of the vampire movie or the vampire lore for yourself, dude? Dude, exceptionally good question. Um, and, uh, like, obviously, like, i got to throw Nosferatu back at you just for sheer, you know, brilliance in that regard and how influential it was. There have been many iterations of the uh, vampire, you know. it's um, And as long as you've got the cliches of it, him coming from Transylvania and all this sort of stuff, because, I mean, genuinely, I mean, the rumour has it, and I think it's historically accurate, that um, the whole idea of um, Count... Count Dracula is um, from Vlad the Impaler of Transylvania. And I don't know how many people you have to impale before you get known as the Impaler, but I think it's quite a lot. And this guy was a vicious, vicious fiend. And it's rumoured and believed that he would drink the blood of virgins to stay young and all of this sort of stuff. And so Vlad the Impaler is quite a harrowing guy. So any... Any iteration of someone so murderous and intent is really quite something, isn't it? It's a concept that's a bit hard to wrap your head around, that someone could actually go through with all of this and still be fine in the morning and wake up and have, uh, you know, virgin blood with your cornflakes. It's sort of absolutely baffling. Um, I mean, cliched, I think for me, though, if you're going to summarize um, Dracula in, in his purest essence, he is noble he's a prince he is uh, he's got surrounded by luxury he's affluent but he's super freaky and no one else really has played count dracula in my mind as well as gary oldman um in bram stoker's dracula i there think it was go. in 1990 or 92 uh, tom waits is in it for goodness sake and anthony hopkins of course is um god what's that guy van helsing yeah um and yeah, so I think like really I'm not even going to closely associate the Twilight Saga with anything close to vampirism because these guys were shiny jerks. They were not vampires. They were brooding, annoying high school kids. And yeah, they can really, you know, they can take the train to uh, get the hell out of here, town, please. I'm not interested. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so I think that's it. I mean, do you sort of draw a parallel there with like Gary Oldman's performance? 
I draw a parallel with the last two analogies. Like those little kids can take their sparkly butts and, and go sparkle somewhere else. Almost undid the whole vampire thing. Oh, you know, Jesus, yeah. vampire drama. They don't want to go into the sun, not because they're going to catch on fire and die, but because I'm a bit too sparkly and yeah, I don't know. I might sparkle. <laughs> well, how about you sparkle oh. over there, mate? Yeah, I'm so glad that you made your way to Bram Stoker's Dracula with the possible exception of Keanu's performance in there and dude of all people in this planet you know I love Keanu but I just think it's the one time when a director needs to go uh Keanu can you can you come over here buddy what accent are you doing is that and 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 are you is it sorry you know the camera's rolling now yes you you do okay I know poor Keanu he wasn't cut out for that one because I'm I, just not sure if that's the accent, mate. I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there. To Carfax Abbey. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, every other aspect of that production. Talk about gothic, man. And, of course, yeah, yeah Gary Oldman's performance just matching that. Uh, it's going to sound strange, but he brought a humanity to it. Yeah. As in, he was in pain. He was guy that obviously they made him, I suppose, more noble than Vlad was. They made him mm. more of a knight that was victorious in battle and obviously his bow Mina dies. And, you know, you could, you could sort of get that in terms of like he just feels so bereft. You know, he just feels so emotionally destroyed that, you know, he curses God. I yeah. mean, that incredible scene, my bros, where he thrusts the sword into the cross and the blood cascades out. Yes, yes. Oh, dude. Okay, well, let's look at this from a structural perspective, right? A Manchildian structural perspective. You've got the first act where you you establish Keanu's character, you establish Mina, you establish the history too. So you establish really early that this dude was at once one point a noble knight. And a noble leader with that crazy, awesome red-scaled armour. That's a whole nother mm. subject that looked dope. Of course, the middle section is possibly the most enjoyable where it's really when Keanu's at the castle. And, you know, to quote him from another movie. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. When he's kind of looking out the castle window and the chicks are clambering along the walls and that sort of stuff. His progression into madness. That, dude, that filmmaker's use of the shadow... Gary Oldman's shadow? Oh, oh yeah, my bro, dude, bro, bro. Yeah, I know. Um, now we insert the psychological ingredients that we've talked about before, the music, the lighting, the sound. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sitting in the middle of this going, Jesus, man, my top part of my brain knows that this isn't real, but my bottom part of my brain thinks that I'm Keanu here. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, excusing that foul and cumbersome accent. I have offended you with my ignorance, Forgive me. This is a really interesting section. And obviously the last bit heralded more by Van Helsing's arrival and the confrontation and all that sort of stuff. I just, I, can I use the the word masterpiece? Maybe I can. Ah, you can. I I want to. And look, there's something there too, which I just realized is like when I was going back through the list here about generally the antagonist is 
like they need to be a monster. They need to be hideous and disgusting. And the thing about um, Dracula when he's not in his, you know, vampiric form, he is radically handsome. He is a very good looking man and he's got a top hat and he's got his mustache all preened. And so it's like when, when a, when I don't know why this is going to sound so stupid, but when a good looking person, right, turns out to be total evil, you don't expect it. And it's almost a betrayal upon what you believe this person to be. Yes. Because, I mean, they're not obviously the bad guy. They're not sort of, you know, they don't have a, half their face hanging off their head or any of that sort of stuff. This guy's typically handsome yeah. and he's going to eat you. And so, no, don't. So you don't believe he's going to do it, but then he does it. And like, ah, oh, God, it's really whack. And just on a, on a side, I want to throw out um, Interview with a Vampire. Dude, I watched that recently you and did, had yeah? forgotten how good that was. Dude, and that, I think, for a lot of people, that's written by Anne Rice, I think, and that yes. was just, you know, tip top. But what that did more than any other vampire film uh, had done before was actually kind of explain the needs and wants of of the vampires. Like, yeah. Lestat is a one-track mind and he's a lured, you know, he's lured um, Brad Pitt's vampire character, whom I can't remember the name of, into uh, the fold. And then Bobby. you understand, you know, it's like, you know, he's talking to Kristen, Kirsten Dunst, who's then been turned into a vampire. He's like, when I was young, I used to suck upon rats when I was in a... F-. You know, like, he's had a trial. He didn't want to be a vampire. He didn't want to eat people. He didn't want to do any of that. So he'd eat rodents for his sus- sustenance. And it wasn't very good until the stat went, no, you actually have to bite women on the neck. It's just better. It's just heaps better. They're tastier and all that. So you get to understand what it is to be a vampire as opposed to them just being completely the monster. So for the first time, you've been able to relate because, you know, Brad Pitt's character did not elect that. You know, yes. it was forced upon him. So this is the difference between he and Lestat, you know. And, um, yeah, that, that, that had a bit more weight to it, I think, in a lot of ways. Because um, Dracula, when we're talking to Bram Stoker, he's the monster. Yes. You know? Nothing but. That's right. You don't know anything about him. You don't know, yeah, when I turned into a vampire, I was a bit uncomfortable at first, but then I got into it. Yeah. You, Brad Pitt doesn't get into it, even all these years later, you know? It's really quite an amazing thing, man. So, Anne Rice's um, interview, yeah. And what a cool idea. And I remember, as a younger fella, watching that and it was possibly the first introduction of the idea of Kirsten Dunst's character doesn't age. She was turned into yes, a vampire as a child. Like 14 or whatever. That's as yeah. old as she's ever going to get. And yeah. she's pissed off about that. She's yeah, she really sort is. of understanding that she's never going to have a woman's body. Yep. It, was, uh, it was a very, very interesting movie. And I've got to top it off by saying I actually did not dislike Tom Cruise in it. I actually liked Tom Dude. Cruise in that role. His sort of nuances and what everyone else would perceive, ah, that's Tom Cruise being annoying, he's being too Tom Cruise. Well, that's what Lestat was. He was perfect. He was brilliant, man. And especially sort of like to spoil, of course, it's some interview with a vampire. It takes place in what was modern day, whenever it was made in 95 or whatever. It was modern day 95 and he'd aged all this time and he's telling the whole, you know, really quite remarkable sort of thing, isn't it? It was another early introduction into the idea that the older they get, the more powerful they get. That's right, yeah. Brad Pitt's character couldn't go sort of one-on-one with Lestat. Lestat was older. He was he just was invariably far more powerful. Such a cool idea, dude. And again, you can apply the structure there and it ticks all boxes. Interesting performances, you know, from Christian Slater. That was... Yes, yes, the interviewer. 
back before he went bat guana cray cray. So just a wonderful production all round. So, buddy, if I had to poke you and prod you, mm. what do you hold up high? Can we perhaps look yes. at an example each of what we hold Let's up do most this. high? So when when I say horror yes. to you, what, what would you hold up as most high? I'm not even going to hesitate. It's the ring. It's the Japanese the original ring before Americans uh, got hold of it and thought, you know what, we'll make this a bit scarier, which they failed yep. to do. Yep. Um, and the whole notion behind it is, and we're ticking a bunch of these boxes, is because most of the terror in this happens in the day. So that's a betrayal on what we consider. That's the second part of the original What Makes a Horror list is the darkness. Well, no, there's not a lot of darkness in this one. It's actually terrifying somehow in the middle of the day. And the whole gimmick, I don't, and uh, if you don't know out there, is these kids find a um, this dude finds a, a video cassette and he watches it and it's got all this weird symbology in it and doesn't really make much sense. Um, and then the phone rings and tells you you got to show someone this in the next seven days or you're going to die a horrible death. No one really believes it, and so they don't do it. Lo and behold, die of a horrible death. But the whole gimmick is this girl was kicked down a well. Uh, her name's Sadako, and they called her Samara in the US version. She is a tormented, ghostly thing with scary telepathic powers. And when you see the footage of her crawling out of the well in the video, right? Oh, yeah. And then the guy's at the end and he hasn't shown the video to anyone. She's crawling out of the well and saying, oh, this is terrifying. I didn't see that in the first view. Then she crawls out of the damn TV and just keeps coming. And then all of a sudden he dies in this contorted, horrible way and the film ends. Dude. And I don't know if it's part of the setting. I don't know if it's because it's... It's in Japan. It's a Japanese film that it's it's unusual for us. We're more familiar with, obviously, with Western sort of ideologies and cultures and ghosts. Japanese culture, man, are full of demons and ghosts. Absolutely. They walk the streets. God, it's horrifying. And so this is unnerving because it's um, what we've got there, as so I can tick this box here, the fear of the unusual, because it's, it's, it's a child and it's a scary ghost child. And... This is just too much for me, dude. And I watched this show, right, in the middle of the day with company, with the windows open on a summer's day, and it was still one of the scariest things that I'd ever seen. Because, as I said, there is barely any darkness in the film. It actually takes place during the day. So what do you do, man? You know, that's actually, seriously, and for sound design – and that led into a lot of other Japanese things that really flowed on, such as uh, The Grudge, which is, ah, oh, that's just as scary. And then Dark Water, this is just as scary. And then the Americans got hold of all of these and decided to show you too much and then took away. They're doing the Act 3 thing in Act 2. You know what I mean? So you're seeing the whole thing. So by Act 3, it's like, wow, I've just become so familiar with looking at this creature that she ceased to be terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's those little glimpses and then the reveal, as we've talked about. So, dude, that, to me, even after all these years, man, is still one of the scariest films we've ever seen. And I will, I don't know if I'll watch it again. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to subject myself to that, but, you know, I probably will. So there's my <laughs> yeah. little rants on my scary guy, because the sound is it's scary, man. Like, oh, the sound design is incredible, and it's a lot of silence. Oh, yeah. And then when noise does happen, it's screeching and scratching and ugh. Horrifying. All right, so well, there's my little rant. What do you? Uh, where do you hold? What do you hold high well, in your esteem? I, I did want to pick up a couple of aspects of what you just mentioned about the ring, though. Please. I think the biggest thing that jumps out for me is, again, from that psychology perspective, it's what 
you don't see. You know, it's like the great blues musician B.B. King used to say, it's the notes you don't play. Yeah. It's a landscape where other sayings that come to mind, you know, that old warrior saying of contemplation of death is worse than death itself. This whole idea of our brains can just paint these rich and compelling narratives given whatever limited framework of information, and each has its own separate universe of suffering and worries and stress. And so, I agree with you, the Japanese versions, they almost are like the, geez, I'm just analogy city at the moment, but it's like the boiled lobster. You're boiling slowly. As so you don't jump out of the pot. Whereas with the the American ones, not only did I jump out of the pot, I jumped out of the pot swearing and I threw the pot at the neighbours. It was just, there's nothing here that's sort of leaving me to stew in my own juices. And we've talked about it in previous episodes before, my brother. The idea of the barrels, the role of the barrels in Jaws. We are scared of this crazy, malevolent risk that's clear and present, but the actual amount of cinema time where you see the shark is bugger all. Psycho is another really good example. You, you, it's never really that clear as to what's going on. Yeah. So, The Ring for me, oh gosh, dude, I rewatched it actually this earlier this year after you, idiot. After you uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> Why did you so do that? I was that? surprised at the tension in my buttocks the whole way through that movie. So, yeah, I would- Pucket it up, Oh, my it? God, oh. you know, put a briquette up there, you would have got a diamond, son. It was literally, for me, a realisation of going, my God, this is my brain just going, oh, 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 oh. I'm on the roller coaster. Yeah. I've built the roller coaster. I am the roller coaster. The filmmaker didn't mm-hmm. really need to do it. And that is a unique thing, I think, to Japanese and a lot of Asian cinema, which is almost another episode in- to itself. So, yeah, what a great example, Cuz. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it, man. I'm not going to go on any more about it, but, uh, well, I am just slightly, and then I'll pass over to you. <laughs> Please. But, so, I've given myself that fear, dude. Like, wild, wild thing to be able to do and conjure in someone's head, isn't it? Oh, like, yeah. Take that with you and, like, ah, oh, dude, I'm actually losing sleep. Like, good. Then I nailed it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, what do you got, man? What's up there for you in the uh, in the horror genre? I would posit that most of our Manchildian candidates playing at home know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. For me, it is The Exorcist. Yeah. On so many levels. So we, if we we sort of alluded to structure earlier, if we look at the structure, for me. The opening scenes of, uh, I think they're somewhere in the Middle East, we're establishing that, you know, if you're a canny, cluey viewer of horror, it's made fairly obvious that we are dealing with something demonic here. I mean, it's done wonderfully just with like the image of the statue and the archaeological dig and the site. Again, not blatant. It's not like some big Beelzebub dude jumps up out of the ground. It's, it's all sort of subtle, but it's there. Especially when you go back for a rewatch and you watch those opening scenes, bros, and you go, oh my God, it was all there. Obviously, we're establishing, uh, you know, as I said, we're establishing Father Karras. We're, we're establishing his strengths. We're establishing his weaknesses. Aside from establishing Reagan and the relationship with her family and the vital relationship with her mother, dude, middle bit where stuff starts to happen. Oh, talk about the boiling lobster. Like, the first initial things are quite innocent. Again, just knocks and raps and bangs on the wall and all that sort of stuff. Jesus, dude, you know, 
obviously what we get later on in the film is far, far away from what it starts with, but these are the things that it starts with nonetheless. Middle bit also, mum taking Reagan off for all the medical scans and all that sort of stuff, which in itself is quite sinister. There's scenes in it where she's getting scans and biopsies that are painful and, and in itself like a little mini malevolence within the whole landscape of a, of a film like this. And then, of course, the the third act when we, <laughs> you know, she's got a face that just looks like it's all just sliced up green eggs and ham. The voice is shifted. Gloves are the off, gloves man. are off. Great call. Oh. Um, and, you know, it's Christ who compels you and all that sort of yeah. stuff, man. Right through, spoilers, sorry, but Jesus, dudes, if you haven't seen this, it's, what, 40 years old? Once again, 40 years to watch it, yeah. The whole Father Karras sort of come into me, come into me and out the window, like amazing sort of stuff, brother. So for me, and again, I'm going to do the Manchildian challenge. If you think this is not a scary movie, I'm going to offer you a three-tiered challenge. Challenge number one, bang it on your smartphone, sit in the middle of your kitchen, right? I guarantee you, you'll still go, oh, crap. If you don't feel anything from that, then you can progress to stage two. Stage two, put it on a TV, wait till you're by yourself, turn the lights off. Let's see what happens then. Oh, yeah? You're not scared? You still think you're a badass? Don't like stage two. No, (laughs) no. Stage three, man. Smartphone back out, headphones on this time, good quality. None of those crappy earbuds from the service station. Go sit in the middle of your garden, cars, with the lights off. This is a scary Mm. film. This is, for me, the benchmark in terms of, I don't think, with the exception, perhaps my honourable mention might be Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist. Yeah, nice, But in nice. terms of those multi-leveled areas of my brain, like we mentioned before, the guy up top running Google Chrome going, look, I know it's, I know it's acting. I know it's a mask. I know that's not real. Mm, you know, mm. that's just pea and ham soup. I know she doesn't know how to speak Aramaic. Oh, just in a disco dance with that lower part of my brain going, oh, yeah. my God. Like, I've never <laughs> felt, I don't think I've ever felt so distressed, my cuz, biologically I distressed yeah. watching a horror movie. Yeah. So that's my. Well, I love it. And what you've gone and done then with the stage three that you just mentioned, right, is that we, we've talked about this ad infinitum, Uso, and it's about if you in that one, right, in The Exorcist, if you turn off the visuals and just hear the sound, oh. we're talking about soundscapes before, like how they complement, but what you can do is turn off the visuals of The Exorcist, and dude, it's still scary. If you treat it like a radio play, you don't need half of the visuals, because Reagan's face at that one point looks like she's being cut up and she's like the demon, right? But dude, just hearing that, and as you were saying, potentially, and the theory is that it's actual you know, audio from real-life exorcisms, wherever they've taken place, dude, something harkens within you when you hear that, and it's not good. You want it to cease as soon as possible. So that's one of my gimmicks behind this is like you can actually switch the visuals off because a lot of our horror is visual-based, you know. If I'm watching The Ring... There's about 10 minutes where Sadako's climbing out of the well where there's no real audio. It's menacing music, but the visuals play an incredibly huge and important part. The Exorcist, on the other hand, you cut the visuals out, that is still horrifying to listen to. So, 
and, and on a bright sunny day, mind you. It's, it doesn't need to be a storm at night, man. It's, because there's something in these movies, particularly these two that we bring brought up. There's something in it in our biology that we're supposed to find these malevolent concepts, ideations, spirits, demons. We're f- we're supposed to find them abhorrent. We're supposed to be repulsed by everything that they bring and everything that they are, you know? And Mm. movies like this honestly achieve that. You're in a state of being ill at ease. Do you have an honourable mention? Like I said, mine's Poltergeist. It's a a step down, but for me, Poltergeist is a marvellously... Poltergeist probably wins more points for structure and production than it does in other areas. But do you have a... Honourable mention, I'm wondering. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, I do. And it's um, it's surprising, and I don't think anyone's going to predict it. Dude, Patricia Arquette in this film in the mid-90s called Stigmata. Oh, God. Dude, once again, like, this is the thing where we've drifted into, like, we're, I'm going to look at that subgenre list just again. This is the religious yeah. horror. Right, and there's something about it because, like, if you want to disseminate and read through the Bible and find horrible, scary oh. things that have happened, there is a plethora of them that will scare the pants off you. Thankfully, I don't bother wearing them anymore, so nothing can bother yes, me. Yes. But and I'm thankful about the height of your camera on Zoom too. Thank I know, you. and I can change oh, that no, at any time, no, just good, so man. you know. And that's no, the true fear. It's good there. <laughs> Like, hey, hang on, that camera's starting to tilt down a bit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Said before, it's what you don't see that's scarier. In this particular <laughs> incident, it's what I don't see that's just good. It's great. Yeah. I got you, fam. I got you. But it's because of that. And it's the same idea behind, like, The Exorcist. It's stuff that's sort of, I mean, that's grounded in, you know, we are a Christian society, regardless of how you approach the idea of theology and religion. So, Look, it's just been Christmas for goodness sake. Sorry, mate, you can't do that because uh, it was Jesus' birthday and we take it off. I'm like, right, well, that makes no sense, but okay, we'll take it off. I'll take a free day. Sure, we'll eat food. It's that sort of thing because it is still grounded in our society and it still means so much to us, even if you buy it or you don't, that when you sort of take a twist on what you think you know about the whole thing, like the demon possession, and this is from hell, and the only way that anything can get out is you throw holy water at it in water bombs or in a super soaker. I don't give a goddamn. But when you blend it with something that is sort of grounded in reality, then it is just more harrowing. And um, I haven't seen that in a long time, but it did stick with me. Very much so. And I can still see Patricia Arquette um, with that crown of thorns bleeding, looking at you, speaking this horrible stuff in Aramaic yeah. as her eyes are rolled in the back of her head. And, oh, dude, no. Nah. That's the one that always gets me, by the way. It's not ghosts. It's not sort of like monsters and all that. I get how those are made. I, You know, more so when I'm looking at a monster horror, I'm like, cool, wow, that makeup's absolutely stunning. Wow, they've done a good job. Oh, his head came off. Gee, they did that well. When you've got that level of sort of, I don't know, theology involved, if it's sort of mildly biblical about stuff that you can't help, then, boy, yeah, I'm, I'm lost and I'm totally bitten that. So that, to me, is a terrifying what thing. A, what an awesome honourable mention. And, yeah, you bring up a really good point. Uh, and it's look, it's it's a transferable concept, I think, and it's not 
just about Christianity across all faiths and philosophies like a demon's a demon. Whether or not it's just a universal human archetype or, you know, just a recurring player across theology, philosophy. These creatures, these beings, these concepts are abhorrent to us. They, to mm. me, And as you mentioned, the, the, I think the ultimate thing is just that's perhaps the best personification of no control. You've got no control. Yeah. So I think what's interesting with a lot of these genres of horror, particularly the gothic, often a recurring theme is there's some sort of permission given either known or unknown in terms of, like you said, a portal is created, be that the Ouija board, be that the videotape, be that the movie. Yeah. But to wind up, my friend, I thought what might be a fun exercise, I asked you to watch a, a more contemporary horror movie because uh, <laughs> as we tend to do, we tend to bring up examples from the, you know, from a th- 100 years ago. <laughs> the bygone era, man. <laughs> I will preface again this statement with the fact that I overall do believe that the horror genre has suffered. I don't think it's as good as it was. And look, I'd be very interested in the Manchildian uh, listeners. What are your thoughts? And the invitation would be to perhaps give a context in relation to some of the parameters that we've listed. Yeah. Are horror movies uh, crappy these days because the structure's not there, the reveal's too early, there's no psychological fear? What do you think? But, Gfresh, I asked you to watch uh, something that's more contemporary, and I think it might just be a fitting way to bring this crazy bus home and just yeah. to briefly examine Sinister. The cool bit of this exercise is we deliberately held back from talking about it. So, I'm super curious to hear your thoughts. Mm. Well, look, man, that's, um, yeah, really, really interesting because I haven't watched a horror film that I've enjoyed because I feel like they get a bit wayward or a little bit cliched or... They suck. Well, yes, thank you very much. Um, This is made in 2012 and it stars Ethan Hawke. And it it starts really formulaic, like they move to a new town. He's a he's a true crime writer, and what he doesn't tell his family is that he's moved into. By the way, spoiler alert as hell, he's moved into the house where this really horrific murder has taken place in order to understand it a bit more. The dude finds a box of videotapes, right, in in the attic. No one put them there. They're not his stuff. And that sort of ticks the box on the trope here, finding footage. <laughs> and there's footage of all of the murders that this particular creature has, um, you know, gone through with. Yes. And it's horrible stuff. It's really horrible. And then sort of weird stuff sort of started happening in the house. And so the setup, right, when we go to Act 1, great. New town, new house. This guy's got intention on becoming famous. He's got blind ambition and he's ignoring his family. So you've got the premise, We right? know he's a writer who's had much success, who it's fair to say is in a lull. So this is kind of his last chance, you know? That's right. And this is the way he's approaching it. And he's constantly telling his wife, like, this is the last one, and then we're big, and then we've got all this money, blah, 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 blah. And then his kids start going a bit weird in this house and start drawing stuff on the walls that's a little bit weird, and it's sort of starting to look a little bit like the stuff that he's seen in his videos that he's refused to tell his family about. And so Act 2, man, absolutely brilliant. And I'm actually sort of like, oh, I don't want him to go up in the attic, dude. Like, Dude, the sound's up. Don't go up there. Like, clearly something's there. Like, yell and scream. Get your family. Get the hell out of the house. That's the whole point, right? 
Of course, he goes to the attic and it all goes awry. And so by the end of the film, though, in the third act, right, it's culminating into this, wow, it's actually become a bit of a folklore thing because this, this is a prophecy. It's this uh, scary creature that's been sort of controlling children for you know, centuries, and it's been biblical in in that sort of case. excellent exposition by Vincent D'Onofrio. Just and oh. what a cool idea! Like the D'Onofrio only appears in the medium of a Zoom call. Yes, he's on on screen. He's for five never minutes actually in shot. Best. That's right. Yeah, and it's just genius. And he fills Ethan Hawke's mind with all this stuff. Like, yeah, actually, this is kind of messed up. Um, turns out that you know he's. Ethan Hawke, even though he's decided this one night, he's like, cool, get the family out of here right now. It's the middle of the night, and they pack up their car, and they get the hell out of there, and they start their new life back at their old home. What he doesn't realize is his actions have kept the prophecy going, and in fact, he's sped it up. And then later what happens, his daughter kills him, and all sorts of stuff happens. But what happened, right, <laughs> is to, at the very, very end, after all this has transpired, um, his daughter's sitting there, and what happened is I actually, and I'm going to say it, I I didn't like it. I didn't like the end. I didn't like the last five minutes, which I found to me to be so critical to, be, to my enjoyment, because that's it. The end of Act 3, you've got to be left with this feeling of, ooh, and they kind of did it. They ticked a few boxes, but I don't know, something happened. I'm like, oh, that's it? And then a final jump scare, his face pops out, and I'm like, ah, of course you did. So it was great up until the f- last five minutes, which became, in my mind, the director or whoever had a little series of boxes in front of them. They went, tick, jump scare, tick, prophecy, tick, that thing happened. And I bought the how it was made as opposed to riding with the story. So I'm like, okay, so they, okay, film's over, credits rolling. So I left with a little bit of disappointment, but up until then I had been invested and dude, I watched it this morning in the day and there were still moments where I'm like, okay, all right, well, I'm going to keep this running because the show's coming up soon. I really got to finish this. And I went outside, I did some stretches in the sun. I'm like, okay, it's still really bothering me. (laughs) So I went back inside and kept watching. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I just got really, um, I don't know, disinterested when I felt like it should have made a lot of sense to me. So that's that's my take on that. It was a cool little show, and thanks for insisting that I watched this before the program because I hadn't seen anything really of any note in the last sort of five years that made any sort of um, impact on me. Yeah. You know, I've seen a bunch of things, but they haven't had that impact. And so, unfortunately, Sinister also fell flat at the very last second, where I thought it was going to go somewhere else. so There's probably two others more contemporary that I'd love you to watch at some point and we could discuss it another time. But definitely Insidious, I think, is worth your time and also Get Out, which I think I think Get Out is one of the most brilliant. That. I mean, I know probably as, as people are yelling into their black mirrors right now, a, that's a thriller. It's like, no, no, for me, it's a horror. There are some horrible concepts mm-hmm. in there. I am in complete agreement with you in terms of Act 1 and in terms of Act 2. My God, man. I was honestly watching this when I first watched it going, this is a cracker. This could easily go into my top three. Yeah, yeah. Think about the idea of you're a true crime writer. You're on a downhill slump. You get your last opportunity. So you move into the actual house where, what, four people are hung? Four people in a family are hung. 
sort of position that with finding this projector, which is obviously doubles as a portal, this ancient demon's connection to its victims and, and influencing humans, right? You've got that element of somehow he's finding more bits of the film. And of course, the demon is unraveling a little bit more. So, he's not even really questioning how he's found these other bits of film and he's connecting them and putting together and seeing more and more and more. Bubbling away is his daughter, who, again, in hindsight, you go, oh, my God, the demon was interacting with her all the time. She's indicating that by what she draws up on the wall. And, of course, half, two-thirds of the way through Act 2, she goes, oh, I was talking to this dude, you know, this spirit dude. Yeah, yeah. I thought, by the way, Ethan Hawke is really good in it. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He's unfurling psychologically. He's unfurling spiritually, maybe. Like, he's all at sea. Yes. Then you get to phase three. Stage three for me, probably 50% of the way, it was like, okay, but you could just tell. It was like, oh, bugger. You're losing momentum. Don't know if you lost a budget. I don't know if you just were doing too many lines in the toilet. I don't know what was going on for you, but you lost momentum. And in the end. At the critical point, dude, too, when it's like it's all it's all kind of said and done and you've got to that sort of the conclusion end and you know something's going to happen when they're back in the house. But it's also bothersome for me. And I know like the, uh, the antagonist is like an ancient Babylonian sort of cult leader who indoctrinates children to do his bidding and all this sort of stuff, which is it's pretty terrifying. Horrible. Once again, having the child as the antagonist, Horrible. which you don't know. And um, But what bothers me about the modernity of that is that he is getting to kids, right, or um, indoctrinating anyone through a Super 8 projector. Uh, no, nah, that didn't fit for me, you know? And I know it's imagery. I don't know. Yeah, but... Well, the thing about it is that I guess I was trying to draw from it was, wow, he's not actually getting to the kids through the projector. He's getting to the kids through the parents watching it. That's right. In my mind, he comes into the world, that's his portal, he comes through, which he actually steps through in the third act, and you go, okay, that's kind of good. That was the bit that, that, that I, I still was okay with that, but then, yeah. But look, I was just wanted to pull at that thread. I wanted to know where you stood. That was a classic example of if that if that could pull off stage three, my cuz. And look, people may feel differently to us, and that's wonderful. But if that could have landed the dismount, as I say, in stage three, yeah. that would have been a classic for mine, my bros. But uh, I'm with you, man, because it had that brooding. It had all of that stuff. It really did. Had so, Sinister, of- 2012. Give it a give it a stab and tell us what you think. Yeah. Look, man, we have really steered this bus all the way back to Crazy Station, haven't we? The last thing that I want to do, um, I just want to throw at you. I've got a little list here of classic nemesis. The uh, the plural of nemesis is nemeses. So classic nemeses here. I'm going to reel them off one after the other, super fast. And at the end of this list, I'd love you to tell me who your favourite classic cliched antagonist or nemesis really actually is. All right, so I'm going to throw them at you. Ready? All right. Freddy, Jason, Pennywise, the Xenomorph, Michael Myers, Pinhead, Carrie, the Thing, the Shark from Jaws, Ghostface from Scream, Hannibal Lecter, Sadako, or in the US, Samara, Norman Bates, Dracula or Count Orlock, Leatherface. What you got? 
As in, who do I think is the worstest? Ultimate. Who is the finest and most terrifying adversary? God damn, dude. That's a lot, wasn't it? I've expressed to you my my curiosity about someone like Michael Myers, as in, as the movies progressed and the law went on, it was like, well, what is he now? Is he demonic? Is he possessed? Like, he never mm-hmm. seems to get, he never seems to die. Gee, they shoot him a lot. There's never been a lot of resolution there. So, for, for me, someone like a Michael Myers is like, eh. Leatherface, too. Leatherface is, I, I challenge the viewers. If you actually go back and watch the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's not tremendously scary. There's just a whole bunch of scenes of a dude running through the bush going, <laughs> I'd have to posit Dracula, definitely. Yes. Certainly Nosferatu. What, Count Dooku? What's his name? Count Orlok. But yeah, man, for me also, Jesus, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Now that's menacing, isn't it? Like Probably the top tier guy for me. Anyone who can talk the guy in the cell next to him into biting off his own tongue. Yeah. Anyone who can do that is a serious orator in my in my book. Anyone who can not blink for the entirety of a movie is <laughs> is something for me. So hard to ignore the Draculia, but also honourable mention to, to Lecter, bro. I like that. Fine answer, man. And the good thing about Lecter, too, is there's nothing really supernatural about him. He is just sick and evil. And the scariest thing that I can think of, in all honesty, if someone were to ask me, what's the scariest thing out there for you? Do you know what I'd say, my brother? Other people. Yes. They suck. They're the ones that are actually going to get you. It's not the ghosts. It's not the demons or the people that need exercising or Freddy in my dreams with his big old sore hand. Dude, other people. I like that. Hannibal Lecter is way up there for just Machiavellian bent and disjointed intent. Ooh, well said. In some ways, being surprised at the malevolence of a demon is as silly as being surprised at a great white shark. Do you know what I mean? Like a great white shark is going, dude, this is what I've been for three million years. This is how I roll. It's what I do. They've got a function and you know what that is. Yeah. The demon is going, this is my job description, cuz. <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I yeah. agree. With, uh, yeah. I love that. Like the human thing, when we've been given free will, the, all the fantastic religious and philosophical texts sort of say that free will is the ultimate gift to have that free will and then choose to. Eat people. <laughs> <laughs> Eat people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> become uh, become the impaler. Yeah. I would like to impale yeah, it's a bit, people. It's dude. a bit rough. Yeah, insane. It really is. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attendance this fine day. It's been an absolute emotional and uh, terrifyingly adrenaline-fueled romp, and I've had a very great time. P-Boss, thanks very much for hanging today. What an absolute treat once again, oh. my bro. And we're going to be back bloody soon. And I tell you what, it's going to be in, uh, just for those players at home who've actually made it to the end of the cast, um, it's it's December 31st in the 12th month of the year of 2020. And we've made it to the end of what 
in fact, could be called a horror film in itself, which has been uh, our uh, lives for the last 12 months. 365 days of absolute <laughs> bullshit. And we made it. So congratulations and uh, all the best for everyone in the coming years. And I say years because it feels a little bit like 2020 is going to blend a little bit into 2021. So I don't know if we're out of the woods yet. But we can do this. We can do this together. Absolutely. And I'm doing this with you, my P-Boss, and thank you very much for such a sterling year and uh, a great amount of time on the cast. So this has been an absolute thrill. Thanks, man. Yeah, brother, this is rad, and thank you to everyone traveling along with us. And 2021 is going to see a cornucopia of water tank pontification about the finer vicissitudes of the lens, <laughs> oh, the only lens that we really understand or feel safe to try to make sense of this crazy thing we called life, uh, and that is through cinema, pop culture, movies. Dude, it's grounding uh, us. We look forward to everyone <laughs> yes, joining us as we try to sort of decode the crazy through these wonderful and fantastic mediums. So we look forward to scrying out of a portal at you soon, folks. Thank you so much. Indeed. And uh, I can't believe you used the word vicissitudes. But uh, there we go. And that's how we end 2000. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure. Everyone out there, take care. Hit us up on the Facebooks and on your Instagram feeds and any way that you access the portal into this glorious realm that we're really enjoying. So thank you. Enjoy your year. Peace to all of you. Be good or be bad. Don't be Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Whatever you do. And don't impale people. That's the lesson no. I learned today. You've been listening to The Man Childing Candidate. Peace out. We'll catch you next time. Tootles. Tootles. <laughs>